the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Uh, somewhat innocuous sounding or obnoxious as the case may be sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days but in fact it is the theme from one of the best selling video games of all time Call of Duty and I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool and yet out of the very same mouths will come well there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children how can you dare even suggest such a thing well which is it going to be folks can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can out of one side of our mouth suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. 
um, violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated. It is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded. So you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence. So you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, the, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words, when we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a, you know, take a joystick and make the you know, little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in, um, I believe it was Mississippi, had, in Pearl, Mississippi, that student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but well, he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now. But boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion. I mean, we're spending, so I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, (laughs) Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing, and most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here. Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment, In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we, as a society, surprised Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it 
do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. Outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under adult sort of authority, and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of uh, pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time... <laughs> Uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition, and that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So for, for everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening, and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining, and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem-solve and 
when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware. Keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. Like, there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me is we were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that, that kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, <laughs> but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world, uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's where addictions come in, and there are definitely, you know – Teenagers who, and, and young, especially young, young, men, young men who are addicted to video games. And the addiction comes from the pleasurable response. And unfortunately, th- there's, there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So, for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain... Um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative, worse violence at the higher levels using worse weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going, and it allows your brain to take in that sensation, and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system, and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life, that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, in enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers. 
hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your, and girls do too, but boys more so, get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. How far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god. But in fact, it is a, an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods. Within the, the deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and, and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God, or a God, to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this. And you can, you can sense about you uh, demonic presence all around and the depravity of man. And it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with him and appease him, and yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality, God came down. In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me, and then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. 
And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you. Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. You know, people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it, it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And in and, and so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him, in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth, and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made. He got dirty, and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that... that you know, we we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we we hold people accountable and we hold grudges. And in, in the face of justice, God is just. But what He is is He's also a God a God of grace. And so He wrote a story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch. You know, everything through all of history is the same plot. This plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace has gotten and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean. You know, as we oftentimes will hear the picture of, of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't ten commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it, it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some suggesting that, that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you, you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness. Yeah, you know, the, the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God. But what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called, called Nazareth, and eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a, a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my, my book, Dirty God, 
is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to, the, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And it, it is it, story. it is at so many levels so uncomprehensible, because I, I think we all have an idea about things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do, and yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings, coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do. Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he, he chose these people. And you look at their stories. And, you know, you, you, Peter, who's, who's, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got Doubting Thomas, who's, who's you know, clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you've got you know, the Sons of Thunder, they called them, you've got all of these different personality types, these people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could, have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome, but instead he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us, mm. and, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection and their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a god that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them and he does that's the image of jesus the dirty god and what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across i mean you, you as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group most of whom most most decent fathers uh that care about their daughters would 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 hardly allow your daughter to <laughs> date any of these guys <laughs> let alone look at this group and say as very god himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end, it, 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 it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this, the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it? It, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were. He, he saw where they could be, and he, he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. Now, one of the things I really believe the Church needs to do is resurrect 
the the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the, the Church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way in his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now that feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person, because because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in him. So not, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly, and and I'll have you go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break to to help illustrate. God's willingness to to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the, the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, Pastor, Advisor, Professor of Religion, Vice President of Liberty University, he is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot O-R-G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, also serves as vice president of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I, and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper. You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time, because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, diseases and to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about where, where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. 
But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the on the fringes of society. It wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of his message. But he reached to the rejected ones with grace and mercy in the Gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God. I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's a wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with. It was interesting. We we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods. I don't know what that this is the singular case of a god that would be as a man. I guess it is. I mean, this this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I, I, I've degreed in religion. I teach religion. I, I travel quite a bit. And I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India. I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in, in, in South Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions. And the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five caves, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down to planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them. The story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the the ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with them. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, in in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful a child might be is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is is inherent to all virtually every major world religion, and yet here is one where it 's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us that as scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us that through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of a relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic, even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, 
Uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and, of course, through Johnny's website at johnnymore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E-M-O-O-R-E dot O-R-G. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Moore again, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.